Hello and welcome to the IMSI podcast. This is a podcast run by the Institute of Munitions Clearance and Search Engineers. And today's guest is the esteemed Lou McGrath, OBE. Lou, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Now, for those of you that aren't established in this community, you may not be aware of some of the background of what Lou has been doing. So we're going to step through some of the past legacy and historic achievements that were made by Lou and then talk a little bit about how the impact of what Lou is still doing now is helping the future of demining search clearance engineers. So Lou, you have quite a background and it would be reasonable to say that you are a long-standing advocate of both demining and search clearance um, skills. I wondered if you could give us a little overview of the uh, the first introduction you had to the world of explosive ordnance disposal. Well, obviously, I had uh, a short military career, and um, it wasn't something that um, I thought would uh, pop back on me when I left. Uh, but having been involved with my brother, um, who had um, had some charitable experience working out in Pakistan, and then when the Russians left Afghanistan, um, went went over there with the refugees, and uh, it was his experiences uh, which got me involved, um, trying to come up with solutions for helping those who were going back um, under the UN. Uh, refugee uh, auspices of um, re- removing everyone from Pakistan into Afghanistan. And uh, obviously, the experiences he had was that people were going back and they were given tools to farm, but they were farming on uh, areas where landmines um had been sown and airdropped uh, and were getting killed. That's basically where it all came from, and on a big scale. Um, So it was at that point that um, we began to discuss how we could maybe advise the international community which is why we originally set up the Mines Advisory Group, not to actually be involved in the clearance, because in our naivety, we thought the UN might be doing that, uh, which actually wasn't the case. No one was clearing landmines and unexploded ordnance after the wars had finished. So... I'm going to help the audience out here. You're not talking about the recent conflict in Afghanistan. You're talking about the post-Russian conflict more recently. That's right. The landmines that you'd been experiencing in that time, uh, what sort of range of landmines were they? You said they airdropped and sown. Uh, Were you confident at that point uh, with some of the work that you were doing that you were going to be finding munitions that had been safely recorded and catalogued? Uh, How had that experience been? Well, actually, nothing had been recorded in catalogue. And that was the case in many situations that we came to find out later on 
Uh, if, you, if you take Cambodia, for instance, uh, wars were fought when the Longol government were there, wars were fought during the Vietnam War, um, and different conflicts were overlain with different weapons from different opposing sides. Later on in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge were fighting the Vietnamese. Uh, and each time a new conflict happened, landmines, anti-personnel mines were used. Now, you witnessed firsthand, and your brother witnessed firsthand, the effects that these munitions had. Did you find at that point that you were experiencing just landmines, or had you other explosive ordnance, uh, an unexploded ordnance that you witnessed? Oh, uh, of course, uh, every type uh, of airdrop bombs and other munitions. Uh, so it, the, the issue was that landmines were deliberately manufactured uh, to be laying in wait for the victim. So that was what it made it unique. Uh, if you fire a bullet at someone, you, you've got a definite intention. If you drop a bomb, you're hoping the bomb will explode. The thing with a landmine is it's victim activated. No one knows if you leave a landmine there and you do nothing about it, in 30 years' time, when the conflict's long, long forgotten, a young child might be playing in that area and activate that landmine. Now, you um, worked together with uh, your brother and other co-founders to set up the Mines Advisory Group. At that early stage, what were you hoping to achieve um, and what was it that had made you so energised? So two different things. The Mines Advisory Group, as I said before, was initially founded on the basis of providing advice to the international community, to governments, uh, to help with possible clearance. Um, the international campaign to ban landmines, which was founded in 1992 by a group of seven organizations, including MAG, uh, was set up to bring attention to the inhumane nature of anti-personnel landmines and to bring about a recognition that the production use of should be stopped and nations should sign up to it and commit themselves to clearing the many, many countries around the world. Uh, which were contaminated by these weapons. Now, when you set up the Mines Advisory Group, let's get an idea of the, the sort of scale of the operation that you lay before you. At that point, there was uh, conflicts raging in Southeast Asia, um, quite a number of the uh, African countries, Central America, um, and also Europe was at that point relatively quiet. How, how realistic did you think at that time it was it to think that you could demine a country, a nation, or even rid the world of landmines? Well, uh, we came to a simple conclusion. Um, it was just after the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, uh, in 
1991, we decided to, uh, when Saddam Hussein had laid landmines in the villages around the water sources all over Kurdish areas of northern Iraq, we decided that we should carry out an assessment there. Uh, and we had support to do that. Um, then we became convinced that the only way that you could actually um, ever think of possibly clearing this whole country was to, to actually train people from the community to actually undertake clearance. And that, when we set up our first clearance program, uh, which was a major logistical nightmare, um, getting equipment, purchasing all the equipment, getting permissions to ship that equipment, um, and being able to then bring in the right people, get them insured properly, to go out there and to train Kurdish people to undertake safe clearance. And that's what we did. Now, for a number of different organizations, there's often been the internal conflict about whether to use uh, Western educated explosive ordnance professionals or whether to start disseminating the information that can help assist uh, local D-miners to conduct the work, particularly because of the scale and the nature of the problem. What was it about your situation in North Iraq that made you feel like you wanted to make sure it was local people that learned these skills right from the get-go? Well, it was the only way you could provide a safe future. You're never going to have enough technical expertise coming from Europe, uh, being able to carry out day-in, day-out clearance. You need whole teams of people uh, and well-trained people to undertake it on the long term. The idea being it took us 50 years to clear most of Europe and it's still not fully cleared, obviously, but we, we needed to actually leave a capacity behind. We knew that funding wouldn't go on ad infinitum. So we couldn't just go in and clear prioritized areas. And then when the money ran out, say, well, thank you and goodbye. Uh, what we needed to do was actually train people with the ability to carry out safe clearance and become an, a local organization. Now, the branding of Mind Advisory Group has stayed fairly familiar over the years. Uh, the expertise has increased. Do you feel like it's become full circle now that you have local D-miners that, in actual fact, are more well-versed in the conditions and techniques that are required for their theatres? Yeah. I I think, you know, sort of, uh, I mean, the problem being is 
the availability of funds. Um, but we also have to take into account that many of the countries who suffer the effects of landmines and unexploded ordnance haven't manufactured any of those weapons. Take Sudan, take uh, Cambodia, Angola. Uh, none of these weapons were manufactured there. None of these landmines were made. They were made in Europe, America, China, and Russia. So we have to take some responsibility to clear up things that will affect future generations. After the formation of the Mines Advisory Group, you worked in an operational capacity, but eventually you were taken on as the CEO of the organization. What changes did you want to make and what did you want to do to enhance the already existing great capability of the organization? Well, what we needed to do was um, uh, secure the programs. At that point in time, we then had uh, programs in northern Iraq, Laos, Cambodia, and Angola. So we needed to secure those programs financially, ensure that we had the right people in place, and then look at new countries to expand into, and at the same time, put pressure on governments for support. Now, you are not a multimillionaire, and the Mines Advisory Group is a charity. Um, I know that at times you were operating on a, a shoestring budget. Who did you find became the most sort of prolific supporters or donors? Because you had some success earlier on in your role as a CEO. Yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we had some very supportive governments. Uh, we had the Danish government. Uh, we had, uh, eventually the British government. Um, we had, uh, Germany, um, and Brussels, um, Belgium. So, but we also had private donors. Um, and then, Eventually, I was able to bring um, the state, U.S. State Department on board, uh, who were very committed to some of the projects uh, in Southeast Asia. Now, with all this uh, additional support coming on, um, it uh, came to your attention that there was a requirement to uh, advocate at international level. How did you go about establishing a network of people and organizations uh, that you could use to start creating a movement against landmines? Well, again, that was separate from my, uh, in the sense that uh, there were seven other organizations who began to develop and work people in different countries through different organizations. And you've got to remember this was before the internet. And this was, we all just about had a big mobile phone. Uh, so faxes were very common in those days. And uh, there was none of this. In fact, to take a phone call from Iraq of our guys on the ground, they would radio Porter's head, um, the shipping line, and then we would receive that, that 
communication through our telephone. And that, that was how basic it was in those days. Now, after a period of time, uh, your movement um, and your work with uh, both MAG and the other organizations um, started gaining credibility um, on a world stage. Uh, at what point did you feel that the um, international campaign to ban landmines, the ICBL, was actually you know, looking like it might achieve what it was setting out to do? Well, I have to say this because I think we'd been hammering away at governments um, for quite a long time. Our own government here in the UK was very resistant uh, to a total ban of landmines. And um, we were unable at that time to get major support keep the campaign and keep pressure on governments. Um, but Princess Diana was the one that brought the whole thing to public attention. Uh, she became, because of her ability to use the media, she became the person who uh, we were able to persuade to take on board this campaign and it was through her that governments began moving forward. <laughs> there was an instance where um, Diana was wanting to speak to the, the House of Parliament um, about the landmine issue and um, she was uh, berated by some MPs for being political. Now, we were able to defend her in that case because our own government, during its negotiations, which brought about a moratorium on landmines, um, had agreed with all the other countries that it wasn't a political issue, it was a humanitarian issue. So that changed their whole focus, and we arranged for Diana to speak instead at the Royal Geographic Society. Uh, that was it, '97, uh, the same year that uh, she died. Uh, but she, it was her that brought about that major attention to the international community. And their visit, of course, to a minefield in Angola. Now, the work of the Mines Advisory Group has been continuing for many years. Um, in the more recent years, you'll have seen developments that you probably couldn't have hoped for. Do you feel like, thanks to the work that you and your colleagues at the International Campaign to Ban Landmines achieved, that we might be moving to a place where not just landmines, but demining might become less of a problem around the world? Um, well, it, it could be, and uh, you could say that, um, there is more acceptance, uh, by governments, by, uh, organizations, how important the ability and the knowledge to, undertake explosive ordnance disposal 
is, I don't believe the human beings are capable of never going to war. I don't know about anyone uh, who believes that. Um, that I don't think that's ever going to be the case. I always think there's going to be explosive weapons, but it's a bit like at the end of the day, when we make up and when we, when we decide that enough's enough and we go back to peace, we, we need the right people to go in there and train a capacity within those countries to clear up after war because we shouldn't leave a legacy to future generations. It is very important that we recognize the importance of those expert, those with the expertise to undertake safe clearance and the ability to train others. Now, you've become a member of the Institute of Munitions and Clearance Search Engineers, partly because you've recognized the need that advocacy and regulation work in lots of sectors. What was it that first drew you to the membership of this organization? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I have membership of a lot of organizations. So I, think, I think the key importance is that, um, that we all, where, where, where you have knowledge and can support uh, efficiency in any area of this work uh, and add to the capability, then you should work together to do that. It, it's, it's what you do, isn't it? Um, in, in any sort of uh, profession in life, you have to be able to uh, bring about the best expertise, exchange knowledge and information. Uh, and I have to say, those organizations and companies that now work in this field are so good at what they do because they share and work together to ensure safety and efficiency in the job. Now, thanks to the advocacy that you participated in and your organization worked towards, there was a moratorium on uh, landmine use, and you subsequently were part of the co-laureates that rewarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The Institute of Munitions and Clearance Search Engineers is helping to unify both the sector of munitions and search clearance, but also create some regulation. What do you feel are the achievements that could be worked towards in your sector now that will help ensure the safety and the operation of those moving forward? Well, I mean, the safety is of paramount. Um, anyone who thinks that, you know, clearance is like on the Hollywood films or that, you know, um, the landmines are something that you can almost uh, stop with your thoughts. Um, it's important, I think, that the work together moves together uh, to enable future conflicts to recognize 
do ye can actually, during conflict, lessen the issues by being working together to ensure that planes can continue in conflict areas. Um, and training can begin while the conflict continues. And this is coming about now. I think um, some of the work that's being done uh, by some organizations and companies um, in, to train uh, a capacity in Ukraine to undertake clearance is ongoing. And I think that's so good. It's almost become something that has just become acceptable. From when we were doing it and scrubbing around to get some money to get uh, some training done, or, and people would say, well, why do you want to go clear in Angola? It's still at war. Um, well, we were saving civilian lives by getting out clearance. Um, and you can, uh, and now it's, it's acceptable to go in, bring people together who, uh, could begin building a capacity to undertake the clearance. We know there's a war going on, but we know we can do this while the wars, while the conflict is continuing. We can look towards the time of peace. Now, part of the successes and achievements of your career have come about because of your uh, ability to unify and work towards a common goal. What benefits would you tell people they would gain by becoming a member of the Institute of Munitions and Clearance Search Engineers, and how could it help them and their institution, their organizations, and their countries? Coordination. And it's nothing better than coordination and working together and having, having a way of building something that... Uh, people can share and um, fall back on uh, others' knowledge. That's, that's the be-all and end of it, really. Now, I think it would be remiss of me not to outline two of the innovations that you pioneered in uh, Mines Advisory Group and also in the wider industry. Uh, you advocated for degendering the demining role and uh, advocate for female uh, D-miners. You also made sure that the role of amputees uh, was promoted within your organization and wider organizations. What was it about those two issues that you felt needed to be concentrated on? Why hadn't it been done before? Um, well, I suppose a lot of uh, the gender idea and the idea that, um, you know, someone who had lost a limb wasn't capable, uh, you, you know, sort of, it wasn't that long ago that people were still thinking that way. Uh, but in 97, um, we saw the opportunity to say, well, uh, why don't we train some of the women in this village? Why don't we? Um, and, and that started off uh, in Cambodia, where we, uh, where the, there were women who were coming along to be interviewed, 
And, you know, we thought, well, why not? You know, the reality is, if you can do the job and you can pass the courses and you can do the job safely uh, and you have the skills and ability to do it, then you're in. It didn't matter, male or female. It didn't matter whether you'd lost a limb. Uh, I mean, we were able, people would say, well, you know, what's about metal detectors? There's metal in some of those legs. So we had people uh, design uh, prosthetic limbs without any metal in. Um, they, they were things that you could, you know, just get around. But the benefit and the value of that was, you know, people with lots of limbs could never get jobs in a lot of countries. Uh, and this added to, you know, sort of the humanitarian problem. Uh, and they'd lost the limb because of those munitions. Uh, and quite often in some countries, you know, if you'd lost a limb, uh, you were only half a person and you were looked down upon. Uh, being able to go in as a team and during your tea break, take your leg off and rest your stump and the whole of the village can see that you're clearing their village, um, changes that whole approach and made people think, well, he's just as whole as I am. You know, he's doing something I can't even do. So that was, that to us was part of a humanitarian way forward. Um, and obviously, if you do the job and you're prepared to do the job and you do it safely, then why not be employed? Um, you've met a, a whole collection of people in your career working in demining. What do you find is the type of person that works and is successful in this role? I mean, obviously, you, you, you're looking for people who uh, have the knowledge and expertise who will go out. And usually those people are you know, by definition, former military people. You know, we we wouldn't want to be training people here just as we can send people out. We've got enough people to, with the expertise, to go out to countries and help train a capacity within those countries. And the key thing is that we find the right people in those countries and we train them to do it safely because safety is of paramount importance, not just to the individual themselves, but to those who live uh, and are working in the area that they're going to be working in. We, we, need, we need people. Uh, yes, you might say that we want people who are brave, but it's not about being brave. It's about being technically skillful. One of the things that stands Minds Advisory Group out from its peers and has enabled that your organization and others to keep working is the fact that they invest in uh, local support and local people. Now, for the last part of the podcast, I just want to understand from you how important it is for you to work and integrate with local people on your projects. Well, I think it's very important. Um, 
you have to be able to work together um, and be able to understand um, the different challenges in different communities of being able to undertake work safely, uh, being able to communicate well, uh, being able to uh, accept the local norms and be able to live and eat the same things as people do, you know, sort of. It's not a bowl of cherries in some countries, you know. It can be very difficult. The diets, the changes in what, what, you know, your life is going to be different for several months while you're in these countries. Uh, but you need to be someone who can accept all those things. And, and quite often that I think many of those who, who undertake this work have been in the services and are able to um, sort of accept uh, sort of more difficult ways of living for uh, the period they, they have to be out. Lou, it's been amazing having you on the EMC podcast. And I know that some of the people listening to this podcast i'd like to find out more about you just let us know now what organizations you're working for now as you wind down in your career and what legacy you're working towards well i more recently i i did some work for as this a ceo to help organize the sir bobby Jordan foundation um obviously i had known sir bobby uh, because of his support uh, to Cambodia when he visited back in 1999, uh, 2006. Um, and I was quite happy to help out over the last five years to develop his organization. And, um, obviously, um, I'm not getting any younger now. So, uh, last year I retired from. Uh, the foundation. Um, I still am involved in helping and supporting different organizations or companies um, who are involved in this humanitarian work. So I haven't fully retired. I just don't get paid anymore. Lou, there is a huge number of people that owe you a debt for the work you've done, and it's a pleasure to have interviewed you today, and I'm very glad that you remain in the membership of the Institute of Munition Clearance and Search Engineers.